1: Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash rs10 today.
2: Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode, you'll hear Vicky Tolomash.
1: And at that
3: moment, two turds fall on the ground. <laughs> <laughs> what?
2: Yeah. <laughs> that and more. But before that, uh, let me just explain that I am now right in the midst of the worst period in my life ever. Uh, I did escape the bed bug apartment. I am in a new apartment now, but I now have no furniture and I'm laying on a tiny air mattress with a towel over my head to try to cut down on the echo. So because, you know, we don't have a sound booth set up in here yet. It's it's just, just <laughs> something else, huh? Independent Productions. If you're thinking of Sending some money, uh, donating to one of those NPR shows, please uh, reconsider maybe sending it to a a show that needs it. Also, you know that feeling you get when you can get things done with just a click of your mouse? Hey, it can't get more convenient than that. And now you can even get your mailing and shipping done without leaving your desk thanks to (laughs) (laughs) Stamps.com! Stamps.com turns your PC or Mac into your own personal post office that never closes. Now you talk about convenient. You can buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter or package using your computer or printer, then just hand your mail to the mailman or drop it in the mailbox. You'll never have to go to the post office again. We use Stamps.com at risk and the story studio and we love it. And right now you can use our promo code RISK for this special offer. It's a no risk trial plus a $110 bonus offer that includes a digital scale and up to $55 free postage. So don't wait. Go to stamps.com before you do anything else. Click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in risk. That's stamps.com. Enter risk. Also, you might remember that uh, Chris Castiglione was a member of the risk team for a long time. He created risk show.com. I've mentioned that Chris went on to create an online class called One Month HTML. A lot of RISC fans took the class and commented on how much they loved it, how easy it is to learn to code with the one month video courses. But remember, the one month guys have an even more popular course, One Month Rails. One Month Rails is a series of bite sized video lessons and step by step tutorials that teach anyone, even a total beginner, how to build their first web app, like a simple photo-sharing app, in just 30 days. If you get stuck, there's always a real person there to help you out while you learn. In the one-month Rails class, you'll learn Ruby on Rails, HTML, CSS, Bootstrap, GitHub, and more. Over 14,000 students have already started building their dream app and taking their career to the next level. So what are you waiting for? Enroll now at onemonth.com slash you. Enrollment is typically $99, but if you join now, you'll get a one-time discount of 25% off for joining. And as always, you're helping to support risk. Again, it's one month rails, 30 minutes a day for 30 days, and you'll actually build your first web app. Now here's the show. Whoa! Kids, this is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and this is Realism Stealth Warrior behind my extremely echoey voice right now. This episode is the second of our live from Austin episodes. This is the second time we visited the insanely wonderful and wonderfully insane city of austin by the way if you're hearing this on the week of september 17th and september 18th on the 17th we are in portland oregon and on the 18th we are in san francisco so come on out to those shows if you live there there's children yelling in my hallway right now (laughs) Why don't we get the fuck out of my completely unfurnished and unsound-boothed new apartment right now and get to the show. In a little bit, we're going to hear from Cassidy Santaguida. She is very active in the improv and stand-up community there in Austin. We love Cassidy. But first... We're going to hear from Vicky Tolomage, who first told a story for us when we performed in Dallas. Here she is now with a story we call Twisted Sister.
3: So when I was 14 years old, I was friends with a very beautiful and buxom and sexually aggressive girl. Her name was Stephanie and she was beautiful. She had long blonde hair and big green eyes and in the fourth grade she was already wearing a bra with underwire, which I'm 35, I haven't accomplished that yet. So obviously boys loved her, she was like the middle school version of Pamela Anderson. However, boys did not love me. I was skinny and pale, I had no boobs, but we kind of made a great pair in that way. So, she was very sexually aggressive and I was not. And I was quite a bit older than her. I'm two years older than her. She was a grade below me at the time. And the best way to kind of describe our differences or our, our maturity differences is I felt like at that time her sexual maturity matched my Barbie's sexual maturity better than my own. She actually told me about losing her virginity while I was playing with a Barbie and watching real world LA reruns. (laughs) So, while she was having sex with Kevin Russell, my Barbie was having sex with Indiana Jones, my brother's Indiana Jones doll. My mom would not buy me a Ken doll because I think she knew what was going on with Barbie. Uh, (laughs) Anyway, so, I was okay with all that. I liked, uh, I liked to hear all of her stories. I kind of felt like I got to experience all that scary teenage stuff from this distant perspective. I got to hear about all the experiences and kind of witness them, but I didn't have any of the emotional baggage that seems to take place when sexually aggressive guys are going after you. I was sexual, but in a much different way than Stephanie. Stephanie was pursuing it in real life. I was, uh, Other than just playing Barbies, I was obsessed with reading the Archies, and every week when my mom went to the grocery store, I would get a new Archies comic. With every Archies comic I got, my hope was that Archie, or Jaghead or someone was gonna get fucked. (laughs) So every week, I would get the comic, and I'd read the whole thing, and I'm like this, nothing? Not yet? And it was just like endless disappointment. So that's kind of where I was sexually. So uh, I was in 8th grade, and I think she was in 7th grade at the time. And we're hanging out at my parents' house after school. And she's like, two guys want to meet me at the first bridge. Uh, So let's go. Let's ride our bikes over there. And we're going to go meet Ray and Dennis and just talk to them. And I am like so excited. This is going to be the first time I experience talking to boys, like I'm not planning to talk to the boys, but I'm gonna experience someone else near me talking to boys, I and just like, this is gonna be the best. Like, I feel like I'm gonna become a teenager in this moment, and so while we're talking about it and planning to go meet these boys at the bridge, my older sister, who is possibly even more immature than I am, he, uh, she is listening to us, and I think she kinda of wants to come, but we are ignoring her, we do not want her there, it's like three's a crowd, you're not coming with us, So we kind of jump on our bikes to go to the bridge to meet these boys, and we leave her. But unbeknownst to us, she uh, is hatching her own plan. She's a little angry that we didn't invite her to come with. So she decides she's going to embarrass us and maybe also entertain us, make us laugh a little bit. And she puts on this crazy outfit. She's got, her hair's got this huge headband around it. She puts biker shorts on. My brother was really into this band called Faster Pussycat. She's got this cropped Faster Pussycat shirt on and she's like gonna head out after us and her plan it's not much of a plan it's just to be a spazzy runner that keeps running past us and as she heads out of the house like her final touch is she decides she's gonna grab this bandana to give herself like a huge bulge in her biker shorts so that's like her final touch so we're at the bridge Ray and Dennis are there we're talking to them I'm like it's like the best moment of my life so far like age 14 And I see out of the corner of my eye, like, this spazzy runner, like, with this weird gait. And I'm like, oh, my God. I realize, like, I'm like, that's my sister. Okay. So I'm just going to, like, ignore her because this is my first voice experience. And this is not going to ruin that. So I ignore her. But, of course, I notice that everyone notices her run by. And then I'm like, okay, that's over. And then I see, like, a few minutes later, she's coming back. And I'm like, oh, my God. I just ignore her. And then she does this like three or four more times, and every pass is spazier. She starts, like there's a sloth-like, like sloth from the Goonies kind of grunt that starts working its way in. And the boys are noticing it. Like I see their eyes, like, what is that? And so on like the third or fourth time round, she slows down a little bit. Like I think she's gonna talk to us and be like, hey guys. But the boys are freaked out. They're, you know, like they're mean teenage boys, and they're, like I said, they're like these sexually aggressive, mean boys. And so my sister stops, and I think she's like, "How funny am I?" And the boys are like, "Well, Ray, if Ray especially, Ray's like this to her. What the fuck is wrong with you? Who the fuck are you? what is, what is this? Are you fucking retarded?" And my sister's like, "Whoa, no." I'm Vicky's sister. Uh, I'm just, just joking with you guys. It's a joke. This, this outfit's a joke. This is just me joking. And, and Ray doesn't let up. I think she thinks that he'll just ease up. He's like this. I think you're fucking retarded. And then Dennis leans in on her as well, and he's like, this. what the fuck is wrong with you? What, who the fuck are you? And she's like, I'm, I'm Vicky's sister. I'm not retarded. Just totally, this is an outfit. She starts to like kind of take off the outfit and be like, I'm normal. And... <laughs> The boys are not buying it. They're like, what? And so Ray finally is like this. If you're not fucking retarded and if you're not fucked up, why do you have a dick in your pants? And my sister's like, oh, yeah. And so, like, on cue, she stuffs her hands down her bikers and pulls out the bandana to be like, I'm a lady. And at that moment, two turds fall on the ground. (laughs) I think, like, worst-case scenario is shitting your pants, right? But in that moment when the turds fall out, of course, everyone is like, well, Ray and Dennis are like this, the retard shit our pants! And Stephanie and her are just like, why is there shit in your pants? Did you shit yourself? And my sister's, like, looking at it, and she's like, I think it's dog shit. And, like, until that moment, like I mentioned, I thought, like, worst-case scenario, you shit your pants, but No. Worst case scenario is some other creature or person's shit is in your pants. That's the worst case, and especially in that moment where you're trying to be like, I'm normal, and then shit comes out of your pants. So the boys are so freaked out that they jump back on their bike, and they're like, I am. they got the fuck out of there. They just left. Like I mentioned, my sister was older, and I've asked her so many times over the years, like, what were you thinking in that moment? She's like, I'm thinking two freshmen are gonna tell this story to the entire high school tomorrow, and I'm gonna forever be the girl that shit her pants. And I'm like, oh my god, that's the worst. So like, we keep talking, to we're like, how did you get this shit in your pants? Like, whose shit was it? And to be fair, like, I examined it. I was not afraid of it. I got down on the ground, and I was looking at it, and it looked sun-dried, and it had all these flakes of grass in it. And to be fair, it did not look like human shit. And so she, for the last 20 years, has claimed it was dog shit. And, like, weeks afterwards, she came up with this theory that when she was running down from our house, that she slipped and fell and caught herself and must have picked up shit and just uh, stuffed it down her pants. (laughs) So... For 20 years, this is when her story. She hasn't changed. She's like, that's what happened. <laughs> but uh, to this day, like, of course, it did get out of her school, and everyone knew about it, and she was always, like, the girl that shit her pants. But to this day, she's 36. She hasn't lived in Texas in years, and she tells me she hates coming to Austin, because we grew up in Houston, and most of the kids that we grew up with moved here, and they went to college here, or they went to ACC, or they didn't go to college here, and they just came here. And she's like, every time I'm in Austin, she's like, it doesn't matter what time of night it is, she's like, I'll go into an HEB, a CVS, and two in the morning, someone we remotely knew when we were kids will be like this, Sarah
1: Talamash,
3: And she'll be like, oh, hey, yeah, what's going on? She's like, I'll just be buying tampons, and then I'll hear them be like this, I heard this story about you shitting your pants. (laughs) So, that's my story. (laughs) A doggy poo! Disgusting! Oh, how disgusting!
4: What? A doggy poo?
1: Yes, indeed. What else did you think you were?
2: Uh, I wonder why God has created me. He said everything has a purpose. But what would I be good for? After all, I am just a
1: doggy-poo.
5: celebrating his 23rd birthday at a bar in downtown Austin, where I was hanging out with my friends. One of the guys in his group walked up to my best friend to hit on her, and while I stared in horror, Ed came up to me and said, ah, don't worry about Steve, he's harmless. I mean, who could hurt a girl wearing tight jean shorts like that? I immediately loved his sense of humor, and we spent the rest of the evening sitting at the bar and chatting. He told me that he was stationed in Portland, Texas after having just graduated from West Point Academy. Wow, I said, you must be really smart. Uh, I guess. But you know, the military its really not my thing. It's a good way to pay for college though, and I'll be out in five years. The next Wednesday, he drove all the way down to Austin to take me out to dinner. And I was so nervous because I couldn't believe that this smart, funny man Amazing blue eyes and an adorable southern accent was a unique. But we had such a fun time. And we grinned and laughed the whole night, and after that, we were pretty much inseparable. By the time Thanksgiving rolled around, I was ready for him to meet my family. He wooed my grandmothers with his southern charm and impressed my parents with his West Point degree. At the end of the evening, uh, we were getting ready for bed, and he was like, Cass, I really liked your family. I can't wait for you to meet mine. I just love you so much, and I was stunned. I mean, I loved him too, but we hadn't said that to each other, and I was speechless. He stammered on. Oh shit! I probably shouldn't have said that so soon. This is really early, and you know, it's the truth, though. I I don't think I could ever love another girl the way that I love you. Jesus Christ, Cassie, will you say something? <laughs> so, you know, I came to him and I was like, oh yeah, sorry, uh, I love me too. He smiled at me and he said, you know, I'm going to marry you someday. And I grinned back at him and I said, oh yeah, I think I like that idea. So we were in love. But then in uh, March of 2003, the United States invaded Iraq on uh, a quest for weapons and mass destruction. Six months later, Ed found out that he was getting deployed. The first conversation that we had about his deployment was really intense. Um, We talked about maybe breaking up. He said, I love you more than anything, but I don't think I can ask you to wait for me for a year. Come on, you're not asking me. I love you. I want to wait for you. I'm more worried about how I'm going to find out if you get hurt or something bad happens. I'm not technically your family, so the Army isn't going to call me. He said, Cassie, don't worry about it. Nothing's going to happen, and if it does, I promise my mom will call you. So the night before he left, Ed and I decided that we were going to stay up all night in his apartment having wild sex, (laughs) because neither of us was going to be doing any of that for like the next year. After several hours, we were laying in his bed naked, just completely spent and raw, and he crawled into my arms like a small child would, and he started crying. I wish I didn't have to leave," he whispered. "I'm so scared that I'm never going to see you again." I whispered back. "Yeah, my biggest fear is that you're never coming home." We both cried quietly and then fell asleep in that position. Waking up the next morning and untangling ourselves from each other was the hardest thing that we ever done. I watched the bathroom door quietly while we took a shower. Tried really hard not to cry while he put on his uniform and paced around the living room while he packed some final items into his bubble bag. And then we kissed for a full 60 seconds before he walked out the door. And at first, Ed's deployment seemed nothing like orderly. Uh, he was uh, stationed in Baghdad in the green zone, so he had regular access to creature comforts, including a reliable internet connection. And one day he emailed me and he said, hey Cassidy, I'm gonna change my work schedule so that I work nights. That way, we're gonna get off work at the same time and you and I can chat online after work. And so we settled into our daily routine of seeing how each other's day was, even though we were across the globe from each other. But about six months into his deployment, everything seemed to change for Ed. He sent me a message one day saying that uh, while he'd been asleep in the barracks and everyone else was out at work, an RPG or a rocket-propelled grenade had been shot into his building. Well, luckily, it didn't detonate. So he was alive because of a malfunction. What an amazing stroke of luck. But for the two of us, it was also a reality check. I became increasingly paranoid that something awful was gonna happen to him and I wouldn't know about it, and he just became completely miserable. All he wanted to talk about was how much he hated everybody over there, Americans and Iraqis alike. He felt like he was completely insignificant. He hated everything that he was doing. I tried to get him to elaborate, but he would just say things like, I don't wanna talk about it right now, or I'm not allowed to talk about that kind of stuff. So I knew that he was struggling with something, but I didn't know what it was. And most days, that was more frustrating than the danger or the distance. Not long after that, Ed found out that he was gonna get two weeks off for rest and relaxation over the Thanksgiving holiday. He decided that he wanted to spend that time at his family's home in Virginia where he'd grown up. But he bought me a plane ticket to go out there for a week. Why just one week? Well, he told me that he didn't want me to be bored for two weeks just hanging out with his family, and besides the second week that he was home, he really wanted to go on a road trip with one of his childhood friends. But the week that we were out there, it was amazing. We had such a good time, and for seven days, we didn't have to worry about separation, or war, or pain. We just got to have fun. There was a shadow in his eyes that I really had never seen before. And when somebody would approach him and ask him what it was like in Baghdad or thank him for his service, he would just snap back at them and be like, don't thank me. It's my job. It's not my choice. There's nothing to be thankful for there anyway. But like I said, other than that, we had a great time. And uh, at the end of the week when it was time for me to go home, I did not want to let go of him in the airport. But I did. And I got on the plane and found my seat. And uh, I pulled a hood of my sweatshirt on over my face and I just wept the entire foot. The last half of Ed's deployment was incredibly difficult for both of us. It seemed like it was never going to end, and it was just a period of complete darkness. But during that time, uh, we made a promise to stick by each other no matter what happened. And we kind of had this mantra, you know, if we can just get to the end of the deployment, then everything will get better. And we did make it to the end of the deployment. Fourteen months after he left, Ed got to come. I remember the morning that he got back, I was wandering around this airfield full of soldiers and their families crying and laughing and hugging, but I couldn't find him anywhere because I couldn't see because my eyes were filled with tears. But he found me and he came up behind me and picked me up into his arms. <sighs> to hear his voice, gravelly from days of traveling, to kiss his face, stubbly and hot and red from a year in the desert sun, to have this scent for my nose was manly and sweaty and saucy. But it was the best moment of my life because he was home and he was safe and everything was going to get better. And the first few weeks that he was back were amazing. We giggled and partied and stared into each other's eyes until we were dizzy. It was like real life was never gonna set back in. But one night he left my place to go home and I sat down at my computer to check my email and he left his inbox up on the screen. And there was an email open from a woman saying that she couldn't wait to see him again. I was so confused and I saw that that email was uh, filed in a folder called Girls. So I started looking around. And there were messages from so many girls saying they couldn't wait to meet him or see him again. They were so appreciative of all the gifts that he sent them. A lot of these messages came with new photos. I also discovered that every email that I'd sent him over the last several months was in the girls' folder. And even though I read hundreds of emails that night, That hurt the most because we had promised each other our lives. I had put mine on hold for a year. I stood by him while he wasted away on the other side of the world. I should have meant more to him than some girl he met in online chat rooms and a picture of his kids. So I called him up and I told him I can't do this. We have to break up. He told me to calm down and that he would drive into Austin the next day and we'd talk about it. So for 20 hours, We cried, argued, and talked, and by the end of it all, he convinced me that we should stay together. Cassidy, you're the most important thing in my life. I love you more than anything. Those girls don't mean anything to me. That was just something I had to do because I felt so lonely and isolated overseas. But now that I'm back, I'll break up with all of them. I'll even copy you on the messages. I will do whatever it takes to rebuild trust. I know I need to get help dealing uh, with all the shit that I went through over there. And it sounds stupid now, but I believed him. I thought, okay, well now that he's home and we're around each other all the time, he's not gonna want to have these kinds of interactions with other women. So we stayed together. And three months later, we moved in together. That's when I realized just how broken my favorite person was. Every night on his way home from work, he'd stop and buy a case of beer, and he drank the entire thing, getting angrier with every sip until all 24 bottles were empty. I hated the drinking so much. I hated how hateful it made him, and so we fought about it all the time. One night, he uh, spilled a beer on his laptop and started cursing me like crazy, and I was like, you know, I'm in, like, I'm just gonna go to bed. But a few hours later, I woke up to him shaking me awake, he was inches from my face, and he hissed, "You sneaky fucking woman! I can't believe that you got your dog to piss on my laptop." And I was like, "What, is he What are you talking about, and He was like, "I know that you're paranoid about me talking to women online. I don't know why I have to keep proving myself to you. I can't believe that you ruined my laptop. This is just sick. I just..." wanted it to be over. So I said, you know, I'm sorry. Let's just talk about this in the morning. I'm really tired. I need to get some sleep. You should probably try to get some sleep, too. I don't need to fucking sleep, he said and stomped up. On another night, he woke me up and stood over me in the darkness, and he said, you know, we probably both would have been better off if I just died in Baghdad. Yeah, I said, maybe you're right about that was a terrible thing to say to somebody that you love. And I still wish that I could take it back. But in that moment, I finally understood that my greatest fear had been realized. The man that I loved was never coming home. But I was exhausted and tired and scared, so I had to stay with him. The next morning, I told him, you know what, Ed, I really think that you need to make an appointment to get some help. And he said, yeah, you're right, I'll do that today, just like he always did. But he never talked to anyone. And a few months after we moved in together, Ed was stationed in Missouri for some training. When he came home for the holidays, uh, we decided that uh, we would get married later that summer. It's probably not the smartest idea, but at the time, I was still so in love with the man that he used to be that I wasn't ready to admit that our lives together were just a disaster. So a few days later, I took him to the airport so we could go back to training, and that was the last time that I ever saw him. Not long after that, I found out that he was cheating again. I called him up and I was like, why are you doing this to me? Why are you doing this to us? And all he could say was, I don't know, I can't stop hurting you. I think I really needed some help. So we broke up and I was completely crushed. But despite all of that, we stayed in touch over the years, including during a second deployment in 2007. But the last time I ever heard from Ed was in 2010. He called me after spending six months in jail. Uh, he told me he had been diagnosed with PTSD. Uh, he had a son that he never met with a woman that he barely knew. He'd gotten married, had a daughter, gotten divorced. He violated restraining orders against both of those women, which is how he ended up in jail. And they said, hey, Cassidy, we should get together and catch up. I could drive down to Austin like I always used to do. I don't think that's such a good idea. Ben. I mean, I wanted to know that he was okay, but I was also terrified of seeing him. I said, wow, Cassidy, after everything we've been through over the last several years, I think you owe me another chance. <laughs> I owed him another chance? That was my breaking point. After everything, I snapped and I shrieked into the phone. I can't believe you think I have anything left to give you. You've taken everything. Do you even know that every relationship I've had has been completely fucked up because of you? I am scared every single second. I can never let my guard down. I never trust my judgment. And I never believe anything a man tells me, ever. You and I were happy, and we were supposed to be happy together forever, but you are so broken, and so unable to be fixed. And you know what? I hate you for breaking me, too. And then he hung up. And that was it. Until several months ago when I decided that I wanted to try sharing this story. I texted him one night to make sure that he was okay and he texted back. And we didn't really say much, but I at least know that he's alive out there somewhere. The truth is, I think about Ed all the time. I wish that we could have stayed in his bed forever that night before he left. I wish that he had never gone to war. I wish that it hadn't changed him the way that it did. And I wish that it hadn't changed me. I know firsthand that the carnage of war extends far beyond the battlefield. It irreparably damages people, relationships, and society. It's been eight years since I broke up with Ed, but I still carry the effects of war with me everywhere I go. But making the decision to talk about and deal with the personal calamities of war has set me on a path to finding the man that I love now, someone that I can fully trust and be vulnerable with, in the new love of my life.
2: This is Noella Charles behind me now. And uh, just before that story we heard from Cassidy Santaguita we heard a little interstitial that our episode editor, Jeff Barr, worked up out of that masterpiece of Korean cinema, Doggy Poo. Oh, ho, 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 Doggy Poo, how we love you. And speaking of love, that's the emotion you'll feel when you come and visit us at thestorystudio.org. You can find out about our September workshops we've got starting. We've got a one-day business, storytelling for business workshop with Don Fraser on September 20th. We have a two-day standard storytelling workshop. With Julia Wiedemann on that same day, the 20th. Both of those are in New York City, but if you're in Los Angeles, Beowulf Jones is the producer of the live show, the Risk Live show that we do at the Nerdmelt Theater once a month out there. And he is teaching a two day storytelling workshop on the 27th of September and the 28th, of course, out there in LA. So, Go to thestorystudio.org, find out about it. Hey, if you use the promo code RISK, you'll get $30 off for any of those workshops. It's a wonderful way to get creative, to work on your communication skills, and to have a really satisfying and meaningful experience. So that's at thestorystudio.org. Don't forget, $30 off with the promo code RISK. Now, in a bit here, we're going to hear from the remarkable Katie Heim, who is the author of If My Vagina Were a Gun. Very powerful lady with a very powerful story. But next up, a story from the wonderfully talented Mr. Sam Dingman, who has his own podcast called Dingmantics, and we call it You Talking to Me?
4: Moved to New York with some expectations about what it was going to be for me. Uh, specifically, I moved there because I wanted to be an actor, and I've been living there for a few years. And I had booked two roles. Those roles were nightclub patron number three. I was in the off-off Broadway debut of *Sex and the City*, the play. Uh-huh. And the other role that I had booked uh, was in a play called Widows, in which I played the part of Headless Corpse in River. So things were not going quite as well as I had hoped. And that was uh, difficult for me, because acting had always been, for me, a way of kind of having an identity. I remember when I was growing up, I sort of didn't know like who I was supposed to be. And as I got older, I discovered acting, and the thing I really liked about it was that you kind of get to have whatever identity you want. You can have everyone else's identity and you don't really have to think about your own. There's this really great idea that you have to be able to step into someone else's world and kind of be able to be in it. But you don't go all the way. You don't actually become them because it's a performance. So you live in this kind of cool space in between. As you can imagine, our Headless Corpse in the River and nightclub patron number three did not really feed the urge to live in that space. And the other problem I was having is that I had this day job which should have maybe served a similar impulse. I was a bellhop in a hotel, and that should have been an opportunity to come into contact with other people's ways of being and really be able to interact with it. But I sucked at that too. I remember on one occasion, a hip hop artist named Skyballa checked into the hotel, and I had the privilege of taking him up to his room. And when we got there, he was like, hey man, uh, you wanna hit this tree? I didn't know what that meant. So I was like, no thank you. And then I went back downstairs, and then I said to my fellow bellhop, what, uh, what is hitting the tree? And they were like, he was asking if you wanna get stoned, man, why didn't you do it? I was like, God, that was my shot. That was a chance to really do the thing. So I was like, I have a great idea. So I got on my cell phone. I went outside around the corner from the hotel. And then I called the hotel. And I said, "Uh, uh, hello, can I speak to uh, Sky Bala, please? And the hotel connected me. And he was like, hello? I was like, Mr. Bala, uh, this is Sam, the bellhop from before. I was wondering if it would still be possible to hit the tree. And he hung up on (laughs) me. But the thing is, I couldn't even interact with like normal people. On another occasion, a family came in, and and the thing about the other bellhops at the hotel is they could talk to anybody. Anybody who came into the hotel, say it was a family, they would be like, hey, uh, you're in New York for the first time with the kids? That's fantastic. You're gonna go to the Empire State Building? And the families would be like, yeah, yeah, we're really excited. And they'd be like, the Empire State Building's the most wonderful place in the world. Bullshit all day long. But it worked. Versus me who would get in the elevator with a family and say things like, well, we do offer uh, breakfast. Do you guys like breakfast? And they would say, yes, because everybody likes breakfast. And then I would say, well, we have very fluffy eggs. and then there was silence in the elevator for 30 floors. (laughs) So I needed to make a change. None of these things was going well. And I had always had this kind of fascination with cab drivers. I always thought, there's something about being a cab driver that, that I feel like is similar to what draws me to acting. There's something there that feels like it's that same opportunity to get into that space between. Also, my favorite part of being a bellhop was on the overnight shift when people would uh, pull up to the curb and check into a hotel and ask me to park their car. Which I would do, eventually. (laughs) But first I would take it for a little spin around the nave, just to see how it handled on the city streets. So if any of you were wondering, uh, as a sidebar, if people do that when you drop your car off at a valet, they absolutely do. (laughs) So, I decided I was going to become a cab driver, and the thing that really stuck out to me about the cab driver training was this part where they said, uh, you're not allowed to discriminate against potential passengers. And I was sitting there with my fellow aspiring cabbies, and we were sort of looking at each other, and the, the teacher said to us, well, for example, if you see a black person, and you don't like black people, too bad, you have to pick them up. And we looked at each other and we were like, that seems fair. Yeah, no, we shouldn't discriminate against against people based on race. And then the teacher said, also, if you see a person and you think they're homeless, too bad. You have to pick them up. Now, my fellow cab driving students were like, well, this isn't some kind of charity operation. We're trying to make money here. But not me. I was like, if I see a homeless person, I'm definitely picking them because even if they can't pay the fare, maybe we'll have an amazing conversation. (laughs) So sure enough, a couple months later, I'm going down 2nd Avenue, and I see a guy standing on the corner with his hand in the air. And as I get closer, I'm I'm kind of looking at him, and I can see he's got really stringy, salt-and-pepper hair, and he's wearing like three-quarters of a gray tank top. And I looked down at his pants, and I swear, I'll never forget this. His pants started at his right ankle and then went up in a diagonal line that ended at his left hip. (laughs) He was a mess. And I thought, that gentleman probably does not have the house. I'm definitely picking him up. So I pull over to the corner. And I open the door and he gets in and instantly my cab is filled with the smells of sweat and I should pause here to point out that it was February and fortified wine. And I see he's got this look on his face. His eyes are really puffy and it's that look kind of like when you've been up all night and it was hell, but you did it. And you're kind of looking at everybody like, yeah, motherfucker I did it. But then he's also kind of Wheezing a little bit and periodically grunting. So I say, Well, who am I to judge? Maybe this guy's homeless, or maybe he's an errant prince from a far off land with an acute case of wanderlust. There's only one way to find out. So I said, Where to, sir? And he said, I'm in the Gordon Williams. <laughs> It was a little hard to understand him because he only had four teeth. Based on that and his physical appearance, I surmised that his tooth-to-dollars ratio was probably about one-to-one. One. <laughs> this was going to have to be one hell of a conversation. So we start driving and we're going along, and at first it's it's fine, you know? We're getting down 2nd Avenue and he's just kind of sitting in the backseat going like this, <laughs> and I was like, well, this six grand in fail But then we get to this part of 2nd Avenue where there's a police station. And all of a sudden he kind of perks up a little bit. And he's like, dude, no cops, bro. We cannot go past no cops. And I said, uh, sorry. And he said, dude,
5: I got a, I
4: got a couple of warrants, bro. I said arrest warrants? And he said, No, it wasn't my shit. I was on the bench and I didn't have my ID. I did not know what that meant. But whatever this gentleman had done on that bench, with that shit, and that lack of identification, it had imbued him with a deep fear of the police. So I said, well, sir, this is the way to the Williamsburg Bridge. This is how we go. And then he leans forward through the partition with that February sweat and that fortified wine breath. And he says, Take a the different soccer bridge, dude. I have a knife. This is a situation that my dear grandmother would have referred to as a bit of a pickle. On the one hand... If I take this man to Williamsburg, does that make me an accessory to bench mischief? <laughs> On the other hand, if I turn him in, will he stab me? I decided to take him to Williamsburg. <laughs> I made a hard left. I went east as far as I could. I got on FDR Drive, which runs all the way down the east side of Manhattan. I went over a different bridge. I went into the southern part of Brooklyn, and then I drove him north to Williamsburg, arriving at this street called McGuinness Boulevard just as the sun was going down, having traveled approximately 15 miles for a journey of maybe four. And I pulled over to the curb, and I stopped, and I realized that I was panting really hard. And we sat there for a second, and I was like, uh, 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 uh. and he was like, <laughs> and I looked at the meter, and it said 2850. And he leans forward through the partition, and he says, you did real good, bro. And then he reaches out this dirt, dirty, soiled hand, and he opens it. And four disgusting dollars fall into my lap. And then he opens the door and he kind of shuffles off down the street. And I sat there for a second and looked at the meter and I looked at the $4 and I thought, I don't care. I'm a cab driver, man. I'm not on this criminal side, but I'm not on the side of the law. (laughs) I live in this liminal space, somewhere in between, you people wouldn't understand. And I put it in drive, and I cruised into the sunset. I finally had an identity. Thank you.
0: That you'd expect. I'm hungover from worry and crying. I spent the day before searching for my 16 year old son. I found out I was pregnant when I was 19 years old, and for some people that would have been too young, but for me it was perfect. I was kind of spinning out of control and not really in any one direction, and Justin came along and he sort of saved me. When I was pregnant, I always wanted a girl because I thought she would be just like me and that we would be the best of friends. But it turned out what I needed at that time was my son. Now that I've had a daughter, I know that sometimes girls don't need their moms in the way that boys do. And so my son came along and he saved me because he needed me and I needed him. Becoming a mother was like being split wide open both figuratively and literally. I had never felt so vulnerable in my life to have this tiny creature that from the second you set eyes on, you just want to protect them and make sure that they can survive. And it also made me stronger than I ever thought that I could be. I became a lioness. All I wanted to do was protect this tiny life. So it's a few days after Christmas, and Justin and I have this terrible fight And the fight wasn't as important as what I took away from it, which was he was so angry. He was angry at me, and I had never really experienced that. He was hateful, and and the things that he was saying reminded me just of his really abusive father who I had left years before. And so it pushed all my buttons, and I didn't handle it well. I've always asked my kids for complete honesty, and I get the same to them. I'm sort of an Austin hippie mom. and We talk about all of our feelings, and I tell them the truth, and I expect the same thing from them. And so it was really hard for me when he just shut down and was so angry and refused to talk to me about where he was coming from. Because my son wasn't really into having friends, I didn't really know where to look for him. He ran away. He's never been what you call a kid's kid. He's never gotten along well with other children. There was one time when we had a 12 year old boy at our house and he was getting ready to leave, and Justin shouted at him, Goodbye! I, I can't wait to see you again! I miss you so much! And the 12 year old just stopped and he turned around. His face was beet red, and he was like, Don't you ever say that to me again! He just couldn't understand why other people didn't open up and talk about the feelings the way that we did. And especially, that kids didn't do that, and especially boys. So, he's missing and I don't know where to look. He spends all of his time at the library, just being online and you know looking things up. So I've gone up to the library over and over again looking for him. It's pouring down rain this year's day. Anybody that's from here knows that that's really odd for this part of Texas. Uh, But all day long, it's freezing cold and pouring down rain. And on one trip to the library, another truck just completely spins out of control and sideswipes my new car and leaves a giant dent and shakes my nerves even more than they already were. I broke up with Justin's dad when he was only five years old. I had a subsequent failed marriage after that that yielded me my daughter. And since then, I had married a woman, so he knew what it was to have his entire family shaken up over and over again, and to have to reconfigure his entire life. So he had a lot of anger about that, and then to top it all off, when he was six years old, he was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes. Type 1 diabetes, for me, uh, when he got the diagnosis, I mean, I understood it. I'm an adult, and so I dealt with it. I grieved for what I had lost, you know, the, the concept that I might have a healthy child, the thought that he might die before I did. But for him, because he was so young, he had to deal with it over and over again. He never really grasped the finality of it, and so for him it was just an ongoing process where he was constantly dealing with the fact that he could never, ever check out that he was going to have to deal with this every day, 24 hours a day, for the rest of his life. You know, it really sucks to tell a six-year-old that they can't have another slice of cake, or they might die. But it even worse for that six-year-old to know that that's their life, that's a life sentence for them. So he was understandably angry, and he often said that God didn't like him and that life wasn't fair. And that's true. Life's not fair. And it was very understandable that he had so much anger. But when you add testosterone to that mix and you add in a hormonal teenager, the result is just terrible. And, and so the anger had just been mounting for months prior years, really. he had been in counseling and we'd done everything that we could to try to get him help. But still, the suicidal ideations had come, and he had repeatedly threatened to kill himself, hurt himself. And he threatened to do this with the insulin that he used to save his own life every day. Diabetes is a livable disease, but it's not easy to live where you're constantly trying to do the thing that your body can do by itself with synthetic insulin. Insulin is a killer, and it will kill you if you have too much insulin in your body. And there's no perfect formula for what's too much. So we were constantly grappling with death-defying highs and terrifying lows. So he's out in the world, and I don't know where he is, and I don't know if he has enough insulin, and I don't know if he might use his insulin to kill himself. And so I'm just a nervous wreck. Because I didn't know what else to do, I went home and started watching TV, and I chose that day to start watching Homeland, which is probably a really bad idea, because that's not like a call show. For somebody who's already tense, like, you don't want to start watching Homeland. Around 10 o'clock at night, I got a phone call from one of the moms that I had called earlier that day, reaching out to a small list of acquaintances, and she said that Justin had showed up on her doorstep Wet and hungry, and she brought him in and fed him, and she was drying his clothes, and she would bring him home in about an hour. So at least I knew he was safe. When he got home, he was still cold and detached, and he didn't want to talk to me. So I sent him to bed, and I went to bed too, just exhausted, but happy in the knowledge that I knew that he was safe in his bed and warm for the night. The next morning, when we got up, we went over the argument that had led us to the point that we were at. He still wasn't opening up to me, he still wouldn't talk. I hate to say it, but I I didn't deal with that well at all. My petulant teenager kind of turned me into a petulant teenager, and so in just a moment of lashing out and trying to get him to react, I, I took everything he had away from him, his phone, his computer, his TV, told me he was grounded, and I decided to go take a bath to calm myself down. This is one of the few things as a mom that I give myself is that like hour or whatever to soak in the tub. So I did that, and I came out, and, and I got ready for the day. And when I came out of my room, he was gone again, and I didn't know if he'd run away or worse. There was no sign of him in his room, I walked upstairs. So I decided to go ahead and eat and, and leave for the day. And as I was leaving and putting on my coat, I glanced down at the table by the front door. And there was a note. And it was very intricately decorated. had my name on the front. said, Mom, which once you become a mother, that's, that's your name. He had drawn rainbows with the colored pencils I'd given him for Christmas on the front. And somehow I just knew what it was even though I hadn't looked at it yet. My hands went out to pick up the note, and it felt like I was watching someone else. It didn't even feel like the hands were mine. I picked it up, and I scanned what it said. I didn't really read any one part, but basically it said, I'm sorry, I don't want to be a burden anymore. You can find my body in the woods by our house. And so, without even thinking, I ran out of the house, note in one hand, cell phone in the other, and I called my wife and I told her what was going on and I told her to get there as quickly as possible. And then I called 911. And as I ran that quarter of a mile to the woods, it didn't even occur to me to get in my car and drive there. Um, I ran right past my car, but you know, my my one goal was to get to those woods and just try to find him. I called 911. Said, "Ma'am, you have to calm down," which is what they always tell you. Also, why do you think he's going to be successful in this attempt? Does he have a gun? Did he have access to a weapon? I said, "No, he has insulin." So I knew what the stakes were as I ran there, and it didn't even seem like a moment passed. I, I was at the woods. I was at the clearing, the soccer field that leads into this beautiful green space by my home, and. There's all these people milling around you know, walking their dogs, they're getting ready to go on a hike. I ran up and I said, "Have you seen my little boy?" And they looked puzzled they looked back at me and they said, "No, we haven't seen a small child out here and it took that for me to realize that who I was looking for was this 6-two lanky teenager who looked nothing like the little boy to so anyone but me. And so I quickly amended my description and they said they had seen him. That he just walked through the soccer field, not long before going into the woods wearing his pajama pants. And so I ran into the direction that they pointed, in. and two of those people who were just out for a, a stroll, you know, on New Year's Day, followed me. And those two people became my angels that day. They stayed with me through the entire ordeal, and I don't know their names or who they are, but they gave more to me that day than anyone ever has in my life. The man of the pair asked me what my son's name was, and he ran off in one direction screaming his name, and myself and the woman ran in a different direction. And I was screaming his name, too. There's a noise that women make when they give birth, right? In that last push, when they're pushing the baby out of their body. And it's primitive. It's animalistic and... That's all that I can describe my voice as that day. It sounded like it was coming from an animal. It didn't sound like me at all. Screaming this name that I knew so well, over and over again, just wishing that I could find him and stop this thing that was happening. I ran down the path, and I don't even know for how long, <clears throat> but all of a sudden I heard the bushes rustle and My son appeared out of them, and all of a sudden he was in my arms. And he was saying he was sorry, and he was crying, and so was I. And he smelled like an animal. And I loved it, and I didn't care. And I said, you know, it's okay. We're going to get you the help that you need, and we're going to make sure that this never happens again. And he said, no, Mom, I don't think you understand. I need to go to the hospital. And I said, what did you do? And he reached into his pocket and he pulled out the vitamins. And he told me that he had injected himself three times with full syringes of insulin. The fast-acting insulin works in about 15 minutes on blood sugar. And he had already been out in the woods for many more than that. So we knew we had very little time before he could just pass out, start having a seizure, and it would be very hard for the paramedics to get to him as far in the woods. So we began to run again. The hiker, my angel, had been on the phone with 911 also, and he knew exactly where the ambulance was waiting for us. So we ran in that direction. My son trying to keep pace with me to assure me that he was okay. And I said, no, buddy, just run ahead. I'm not what you'd call a runner, it's not really my thing. I'm more of a like, slow hiker with the dogs or whatever. So, you know, I, I'm not running fast. I'm like, take your 16 year old body and just go. So him and the and the male hiker just ran ahead and the woman stayed back with me. And at one point I stopped because I really thought that my lungs might actually explode or that I might throw up. So I was standing there retching and, and she put her hand on my shoulder and she said, you can do this. And she was right. I could. We ran the rest of the way, and then we burst through the clearing, and and there was the ambulance. And my son was in the back, and I could hear the ambulance driver saying, You've done a good job. You've earned yourself an ID today, son. They were getting ready to do the business of flushing his blood, getting the insulin out, and putting glucose in there to keep it from dipping down too low. He was okay that day. made it through. And I wish that I could say that that was the end of our trials and tribulations, but it it wasn't. We spent the next summer with him being even angrier than I'd ever seen him. I was actually afraid for my physical safety and that of my 10-year-old daughters. We had a subsequent attempt at suicide and ultimately a hospitalization. Even now, we still deal with anger and depression and you know, startling lows. And his father died, to top it all off at the end of last year, unexpectedly. I'm really glad that right now suicide is getting the attention that it deserves. And part of the reason that I wanted to get up here and tell this story is because I wanted to take some of the stigma away from talking about it, talking about the demons that we all grapple with and the signs and symptoms of clinical depression And what it looks like in a child, and what it looks like to try to save that kid's life. Thank you.
2: Show all for this week's episode, folks. This is Andrew Bell behind me now. And don't forget that on Wednesday, September 17th, we're in Portland, Oregon. Come out to see us, Portland folks. We are at Mississippi Studios at 8 p.m. You can always find out about our live shows at risk-show.com slash tour. On September 18th, Thursday September 18th we are in San Francisco at the Verity Club we're doing two shows one at seven thirty, and one at 10 that is a dual production that we're doing with body storytelling out there uh, very very kinky stories will be featured from a lot of amazing people. On the 25th, we're having our normal shows in New York at the People's Improv Theater and in Los Angeles at the Nerd Melt Theater. And then the LA PodFest, the festival that happens for podcasts out there, <laughs> we'll be there on September 28th. So come on out. That'll be a... I'll be there. I'll be out there uh, in Los Angeles on the 28th. And we're putting together a bunch of fun performers for that one as well. Then on October 17th, we're in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Now, Pittsburgh, we need your pitches. Pitch us. If you live in Pittsburgh, go ahead and check out the submissions page at show.com and try to become a part of the story that we do on October 17th. Now, we also need pitches from people in Atlanta and Minneapolis, and I'll be coming to Albuquerque soon, Albuquerque, New Mexico, so for goodness sakes, people, if you live in Atlanta, or Albuquerque, or the other place I just mentioned, which is Minneapolis, um, <laughs> please pitch us your stories at risk-show.com submissions. Don't forget, we are a very proud member of the Maximum Fun Network of podcasts, and we dearly, dearly rely on donations from our listeners. You can do that at maximumfun.org/donations, and be sure to earmark yours for risk, folks. Today's the day. <laughs> Take a risk. It's too much long to see it.
3: Yeah I'm a Pooh, so what?
4: You are not just an a poo. You are a dog
2: poo, The worst kind of them all. <laughs> oh.
4: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.